0: Hey, take that Bible and look back over to 1 John chapter 4 as we return to our series and our exposition, really, on the epistle of 1 John. And I've titled this message, The Sacrifice of Christ. And we find ourselves in 1 John chapter 4, working through 7 through 12. Let me read. You follow with me as I read from verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. No one has seen God, ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. When we come to this wonderful section here, really on the love of God. And throughout scriptures and even throughout this epistle, if, if I were to say, does the Bible tell us to love one another? You would say, oh, certainly the Bible would tell us that. In fact, if you look back just in 1 John, he's already communicated that to us in 1 John chapter 2, and in verse 10, there John says, whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling. And so we've seen that command there to, to love our brother. It's also stated later in chapter 3, look there in verse 10, by this it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. And then he says, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I mean, these are the commands of Scripture. Certainly you and I would be well acquainted with Matthew chapter 5 and the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus even there told us to love our enemies. You have these exhortations all over the Word of God. In fact, Paul writing to the church at Rome in Romans chapter 13 and verse 8 said, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. In other words, don't owe anything to anybody except that we would be a body of loving one another as debtors of that love. Of course, we're well aware in the New Testament when Jesus encapsulated all of the teaching of the Old Testament when he told us to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then he told us to love our neighbor as what? Ourself. I mean, these are the commands of Scripture. Of course, in your mind, you even go to Paul's masterpiece of love and 1 Corinthians 13, sandwiched between 12 and 14, is that love chapter. And it goes on to describe what love looks like. But when you look at all of those commands to us, the question that could be asked is, why? Why is it that we're exhorted in the Word of God numerous times, numerous places, to love one another? What is, if I could ask this question, the undergirding behind that truth? You know, when I lived in Chicago, when our family was there for a number of years, they had these big, giant towers. In fact, at one point, they said that the Sears Tower, if you've ever been there, was the tallest tower in the entire world until another building was built in Japan. But then they since said that it really wasn't the highest tower because what gave that tower the highest height was an antenna that went up. And so then it was actually the Sears Tower. And I've been on the top of the Sears Tower. And of course, it's all encased in glass because they said if you dropped a penny from the top, it would go through somebody's skull on the bottom of the ground. And it's amazing when you stand up there and look at, but when you see those structures, the girding and the steel that goes into the ground of those towers is incredible how deep those, the, that steel is driven. And so as I thought here, what is the undergirding of love? And why does John exhort us to love one another? And what John does in this text is to state for us the definitive reasons why you are to love one another. He's going to state state for us here in this picture from 7 down through 21 why or what are those reasons or why we are to love one another. Now last week we looked at really the, the first two reasons. We just hit the first one and touched on the second one. We looked last week first here, the reason that we are to love one another is because God's nature is love. His nature is love. Now you'll note there, look down in the text at 4.7. He does say there at the beginning, he launches out with this exhortation, beloved. He calls us, though, that familiar refrain. He says, let us love one another, for love is from God and whoever is born of God knows God. And we looked there just momentarily on the source of love. And we noted there that the source of love is God. But before he tells us about that, you have the exhortation there, to love one another. Look down in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. He states it a third time in verse 12. No one has ever seen God, and then this command, if we love one another, God abides in us. But he gives us that exhortation, but he focuses here on the source of love. And we talked about that last week, that God is the source of love. We have noted that, that love is from God, that God is love, and that we are to love one another because God loves us. That's the source of love. Then we look secondly at the results of love. In verse 7 and in verse 8, he stated that source and the result there positively negatively. He said, whoever, is, whoever loves God has been born of God and knows God. And so here, when you and I show that love, it proves, it results that we are truly born again and that we truly know God. And so here the exhortation was to love one another, first and foundational, because God's nature is love. And we just said that that last week, that just as he is holy, just as he is light, here John identifies him in his nature, in his essence, we might say, in his very being that God has in his character and in his attributes, that he is love. And so because God's nature is love, we are therefore, as his children, commanded to love one another. That was the first reason. And then we just left off at the second reason that we are to love one another is because of God's gift of love. And that's found in verses 9 and 10. God's gift of love. We could call it his example of love. We could call it his proof of love. I call it his gift of love. I mean, I think you would agree with me that love really has an intangible quality, we noted last week. I mean, you really cannot, I, I suppose, you can't touch it. You you can't taste love. You can't smell love. You cannot store love in a jar. You can't put love, remember we said, in a safe. Love's got to be proved. And this is exactly what God did for you. And so as you follow John's argument, and I bring us up to speed now, he communicates to us not only in words, but in deeds. He tells us that God is the source of our love as a reason that we're to love one another. But now he tells us that because God's gift of love, we are to love one another. Now look at the text in verse 9. John says there in this, The love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only Son into the world that we might live through him. Now, there are two aspects regarding the love of God in the gift of his Son. First, he's going to say that God's love and the gift of his Son is revealed in his incarnation. And then, secondly, in verses 10 through 12, in his atonement. So here's this gift, it's revealed in His incarnation, it's revealed in His atonement, and that will take us for our time in the Word this morning. Let's look first that, is, that this gift of love is revealed in the incarnation. In the incarnation. Look at the text again in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us. Stop right there. This is how God demonstrated his love to the world. Jesus Christ here when I speak of the incarnation became a man. Jesus Christ took on flesh. It says in John 1:14 or not only there but in one, in the beginning was the word the word was with God and the Word was God. And then down in John 1.14, and the Word became what? Flesh. That is the incarnation. And so by that term incarnation, I mean that the eternal Word, the second person of the Trinity, became a man. He took on flesh without ever ceasing to be God. So he revealed his love in the incarnation. Now now look at how it's described, though, in verse 9. In this, the love of God was made manifest. That word manifest is the idea here in the word of God to make visible. It means that it's to make something clear. To make something known. In other words, behind that word, it means to come out in the open, is the thought. So that prior to the incarnation, his incarnation, this kind of love had never been displayed in such a personal, dynamic manner. We know that God was said to love in the Old Testament. We know that God loved the nation of Israel. We know that from Deuteronomy 7. But here, when it's describing this in the New Testament, it's said that in this is the love of God made manifest among us. That which was from all eternity was made known in time. In fact, the incarnation of Jesus Christ, as the commentator Hebert said, quote, was the unmistakable manifestation of divine love. And you remember a few weeks back when we were studying the person of Christ at Christmas, It was Grudem who made this comment. He said of the incarnation. He said it was by far the most amazing miracle in the whole Bible. He said far more amazing than the resurrection and more amazing than the creation of the universe. The fact that the infinite, omnipotent, eternal Son of God would become man and join himself to a human nature forever So that infinite God became one person with finite man, Grudem said, will remain for eternity the most profound miracle and the most profound mystery in all of the universe, end of quotes. And so this is what John is saying. Look again at verse 9. In him, in this, the love of God was made manifest. That's not the first time we've seen that word manifest. Just look back a couple chapters. You remember, and it was right there at the beginning of this epistle. Remember when John was saying in 1-1, that which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we have seen with our eyes, that which we looked upon in 1-1 and touched with our hands concerning the word of life and the life in 1-2 was made. There's the word. Manifest. In other words, it was revealed. It was made known. And John says, "We've seen it, and we testify to it, and we proclaim it to you: the eternal life which was with the Father and was made." There's our word again. Manifest to us. In fact, what we saw that statement again. Look over at First John chapter three, in verse five. It says, "There you know." That he appeared, and there's that word, to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. And so there you have it. He was appeared, but he was made manifest. In other words, he became visible. He became clear. He became known. In other words, when you see Jesus Christ in his incarnation, you understand the gift of love. Look back at the text, though, now in four nine. It says there, in this the love of God was made manifest among us, look specifically, that God sent His only Son into the world. That that phrase there, God sent His only Son, is a wonderful statement. It declares both the deity of Jesus Christ and it declares the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. That little phrase there in verse 9 when it says that God sent His, we'll look first, His son, okay, the son calls attention to that intimate uh, father-son relationship. His son, if you will, from eternity past, before the incarnation, was bound up in an intimate, face-to-face relationship with Almighty God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word what? Was God. And so that phrase, just in that phrase there, it identifies his deity. It's his son. It's God's son. If you're wondering about the love of God, he is the source of it. But he is the gift of it. He sent, and the word is apostello. He sent, if you will, as a representative of himself, his son to this world. But he didn't just send his son. Look again in verse 9. It says that God sent... And you see this phrase there? It says, his only son. His only son. In fact, the the word there, only, is the idea this, that he sent his one and only son. And here that little phrase, it's a wonderful phrase, emphasizes the uniqueness of Jesus Christ. It is not so much Um, emphasizing the origin of Christ. That's why sometimes you see in certain translations, it's not here, where it says that he sent, you know that phrase, his only begotten son? That's sometimes how this is interpreted. But here, it's just the Greek word monogenes, if you will, and it just means the one and only. It's not stressing origin as it is stressing uniqueness. In fact, it was used of Abraham of his only son Isaac in Hebrews eleven seven, But when it's applied to Jesus Christ in this context, it reveals his utter uniqueness. In other words, no greater gift could ever be given. In fact, let me show you this word. Go back to John, John's gospel that he wrote. Go back to John 1, 1. You've seen that phrase before. So here, he gives us this gift. He gives us His Son declaring His deity. But it's not just His Son. It's His only Son declaring His uniqueness. Look at it with your eyes in 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Watch this. Glory as of the what? The only Son from the Father full of grace and truth. It's not just His Son. It's His only Son. It's His one and only Son is the thoughts. Glance down in your Bible. Have you seen this in 118 of the Gospel of John? Very similar to our text here. No one has ever seen God. And then it says this. The only God. Uh, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Who is that? That is Jesus Christ. No one's ever physically seen God the Father, but the only God, and some texts say the only Son of God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Again, emphasizing that Jesus Christ is his only Son. Look over there in Gospel of John in chapter 3. Certainly you've seen this with your own eyes many times, would know it by heart. But that phrase again, for God, verse 16, 3, 16, so loved the world, here's the phrase, that he gave his only son. In other words, it's the uniqueness of what the father did. Listen, the father could have sent an angel. He didn't. The Father could have sent a heavenly being. He didn't. The Father sent His one and only unique Son. John 3.16 Look down at John 3.18 That's so clear. Whoever believes in Him, speaking of Christ, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only, there's our word, Son of God. So look back now in 1 John chapter 4. God acted, beloved, at Grace Church to demonstrate this love in giving us his only son. Some translations again, fine, say his only begotten son. But again, I know it's not an angel, it's not a heavenly being. No, the son that has no equal is the one he sent that fully reveals the Father's love. No wonder that Paul would say in 2 Corinthians 9, 15, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift. And if you look now, you'll note that God didn't just send him. He sent him with a specific purpose in mind. Look at 1 John 4, 9. It says that God sent his only son into the world. And here's the mission. Here's the purpose. It's a purpose clause in four nine, So that we might live through him. He sent his son so that you, put your name in there, might live through him. And though not stated directly, it implies that God sent his son to give life to those who were dead in sin. In other words, he sent his son To die for you. He suffered for you. In other words, he sent him to live. And beloved, we live, as it will become clear in the next statement, through his death. I'm thinking of the statement in 2 Corinthians 5.15 where Paul said this. He died for all. That all those who live may no longer live for themselves, but for him." whose sake He died and was raised. I love that phrase. He died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for Him, who for their sake He died and was raised. I'm thinking of Thessalonians in 5.9, 1 Thess five 5.9, that God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake, or whether we are asleep, we might live with him. And so here the text is so clear that God sent his son to die, that through him we might live. And this is precisely John's Slot. Look at the next verse in verse 10. He, this is where he goes. It is, he says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So, Grace Church, listen, not only is the gift of love revealed in His incarnation, secondly, the gift of love is revealed in the atonement. It's revealed in the atonement. You say, well, what does that word mean, the atonement? Well, by atonement, and you know, one of the things that's just fun about this church is I will just never dumb down truth for you. And I just won't do it. Number one, I don't think his word should ever be dumbed down. But I also think that I'm looking out at a body of people that have grown up around truth. And our church isn't so much focused, if you will, to attract the unbeliever. We want to do that in the week. We want to build you up. So when we use words like incarnation, it just means that he took on flesh. When we use the word atonement, we just simply mean to say that he lived, if you will, that Christ lived and he died for us as our substitute. That's what it means. He is our substitute for sin. He put away our sin and turned away God's wrath from us. Out of sheer grace. And so I'm just picking off that word to capture this in verse 10. The word is used all over the Old Testament on the atonement. I love what Spurgeon said. Spurgeon said of the atonement, he said, I believe that if I should preach to you the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ and nothing else, twice, every Sabbath day, he said my ministry would not be unprofitable. He said perhaps it may be more profitable than it is. And so this is just a tremendous, tremendous statement. And what are we talking about? We're, we're talking about God is the source of love, God's gift of love. He gives it to you in his son. His son came and lived. He was born, He was made manifest. He took on flesh. But that gift of love is revealed in his atonement that he not only lived, but he also died. But let's let the Scripture define it for us. Look at the text in verse 10. In this is love. Stop there just for a second. In other words, he showed his love for us in the selfless sacrifice of sending his only son. And again, you know this, that love is not theory. It is not sentiment. It is not emotion in a biblical sense. It is action. In fact, frankly, it is God's action. In fact, John goes on to say, look at verse 10. In this is love, not that we loved God. In other words, the origin of this love is not ourselves. Okay? I mean, before we loved God, we were his what? His enemies. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were incapable of loving God on our own. And so, not that we loved God. There's not a person in here who, apart from the sheer sovereign grace of God, would ever love God. In fact, when you were hardened in your sin, when you were set in your sin, it says very clearly in 10 that we have not loved God. But look at the text again in verse 10. But he loved us and sent his only son. And so here the emphasis is on God's free and undeserving love that broke our hearts of stone and our defiance against God. Can't you just praise God for that? And in fact, it goes on to display it even more fully. Look at it in verse 10. In this is love. We didn't love God. He, and there's the action, He loved us, and it's put in the aorist tense simply because it's looking back to the work of Christ. He loved us, and here it says, He sent His Son, here's the atonement, to be the propitiation for our sins. So what does that mean? Well, let's explain it again. I say again, because look back in chapter 2 and verse 2. Don't you remember it there? When it's talking about in two one, my little children. He says, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, verse 2, is the propitiation for our sins. Now go back to 4.10. There it says that he was sent to be the propitiation for our sins. So what does that word mean? Well, let's just dig it up because, you know, again, I'm thinking of our purpose of our church. We exist to glorify God. And we do that. You remember how we said that? By exalting the Savior, equipping the saints, and extending the kingdom. But one of the ways that we glorify God is we exalt the Savior. And one of the ways we do that is teach the Bible. And here in verse 10, it says there that he was sent to be the propitiation of our sins. That word propitiation means satisfaction, okay? That's what the word means. It means appeasement. You know, when we sang the song today, ancient words, in other words, God has spoken to us and he speaks to us in a book It's his Bible. And here it says he sent his son, and he uses this word propitiation. He's the satisfaction, if you will. He's the appeasement. In other words, Christ's death on the cross satisfied the demands of God's justice. In other words, his death appeased or turned away God's wrath that was against us because of our sins. Now, our understanding of propitiation is derived from the Old Testament. Certainly, you remember this. Do you remember, beloved, in all those accounts that you've read, that the priest would go into the inner court of the temple. And in that inner court of the temple, he would offer, the, the Bible's very clear, a sacrifice. And as he went into that temple, he would offer a sacrifice First for himself, and then he would offer it for the people. And uh, propitiation spoke then in the Old Testament of three things I could say. It's spoken, and the word meant it was a covering for sin, okay? In other words, something that propitiated covered sin. Secondly, that covering for sin was for forgiveness. And then thirdly... It was before the Lord that the sin would be covered. I mean, the the biblical teaching is this, that sin creates a separation from God. And sin, our sin, my sin, your sin, makes a covering necessary. And so God's wrath then is the reaction of his holiness against sin. And the covering then is the removal of God's wrath from the sin that would evoke that wrath. And so when we sin, arising out of the holiness of God is his utter hatred for sin. And God must, in his character, react in his holy anger and react in such a way against every form of sin. And God's justice must be satisfied, if you will. Sin must be punished. And so in the Old Testament, those sacrifices were for the purpose that one may enter into a fellowship with God. In fact, there was a way to approach the throne of God. An escape was made, if you will. And an escape was provided. Another would die in the sinner's place. And so the Israelites would sacrifice an animal. You get it? in order to approach God. And the family, just the representative families, would each do that at Passover season. Then the nation would be represented by the high priest annually on the day of the atonement when the blood offering was sprinkled. And where was it sprinkled? It was sprinkled on this thing called the the mercy seat, okay? The mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant that was inside the Holy of Holies. And so if you can picture this, that priest would sacrifice the animal, he would take that blood, and he would take the blood, and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. And as the blood was applied to the mercy seat, God's wrath against sin, both individually and corporately, would be appeased. It would be propitiated. His anger, his wrath would be satisfied. Now, of course, some people in our own day, they don't like this word. They don't like the word propitiation. In fact, there was a a scholar at one point who tried to make the word called expiation, that he expiated our sin. But the word means propitiation. In other words, some people, maybe you struggle with the fact that you mean God is angry with sin. But the truth is, he is. In fact, his wrath rests on evil. In fact, some claim that this concept of appeasing an angry God likens God to a pagan deity that somehow must be bribed. Okay? However, God's wrath is an attribute of his. Just like his love. And he hates sin. And because of his holiness, there must be propitiation. In fact, let me see if I can go into a little deeper here. That word, propitiation, as I mentioned, spoke. And it was even used, the same word, to describe that mercy seat where the blood would be applied. And that mercy seat, again, was the litter, the covering of the Ark of the covenant. And on that Day of Atonement, the priest would sprinkle that blood blood to make atonement for God's people to turn away God's wrath. And so in the Old Testament, listen, the blood applied on the mercy seat appeased God's wrath. But watch this. In the New Testament, in the New Testament, it is the death and the blood of our precious Lord that appeased the wrath of God. In other words, enough for me to say this, that Jesus Christ is our mercy seat for sin. And isn't this what Isaiah said, that he was pierced for our transgressions? He was crushed for our iniquities. He was your substitute. He was your satisfaction. And watch this, unlike the high priest who would take and offer a sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself, himself is the propitiation for your sin. In other words, his death satisfies the justice of God so that you might be forgiven. In fact, the penalty had to be paid and we might say that Jesus paid it, what? He paid it all. In fact, let me just show you this argument. Look over in Romans just one second. It's just one, one verse I want to show you, but I think it, it can make it clear when Paul is giving that masterpiece of the gospel in Romans chapter 3. Maybe this verse will come alive. And it's talking about, and certainly you understand Romans 3.23, where all have sinned. 3.23, and fall short of the glory of God. That we are justified. That we are made righteous. Are we not? Declared righteous by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here it is in 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his what? By his blood. In other words, God put forward his son who would satisfy, who would appease, the ideal who would, who would placate God's anger, and he put forward his son to be the propitiation through his blood. Jesus Christ is our mercy seat. John Gertzner, the outstanding Reformed theologian, said this is how Jesus made atonement. He said the punishment which was due to us, he voluntarily received. The death which was the wages of our sin, he underwent. The stripes with which we deserved to be beaten fell upon his willing back. The chastisement which was owed us was borne by him. The price we would have paid by endless suffering, he paid by an infinite sacrifice. It should have been I who cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou, what? Forsaken me. But he cries that out for you. Listen, because Jesus paid it all, it was he who was forsaken that we shall never be. And because he drank the full cup of divine wrath, we shall never taste it. And now Paul would say, there is therefore no, what? Condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Listen, beloved. God, in his fathomless love, gives to you what you could never accomplish on your own. He gives himself in the person of his son to remove his wrath against your sin. This is how much God loves you. It's incredible, is it not? This is how much God loves you. He loves you so much that His Son was made manifest. Can you believe it? He left glory for you. He loves you so much that He gave His Son to die on the atonement for the propitiation for your sins. In fact, the greatness, Grace Church, of God's love is seen in the costliness of His sacrifice for those who are utterly, utterly undeserving, right? Romans 5, 7, that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners, Christ, what? Died for us. Is that not captured in the, in the hymn? Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, should, what? Die for me. You say, well, well what's, what's my response to that? How should I respond? I'm glad you asked. And John anticipated it. Look at it in 1 John 4. This is really seemingly to be the whole point, is it not? 4:11 Beloved, he's urging you. If God so loved us, we also ought to what? To love one another. The point being this back door, right? Christ sacrificial death on our behalf opens the floodgates for sacrificial love to one another. In other words, the reason you can love is look what he did for you. The reason you can be empowered to love is you don't have it in yourself. Its source is found in God. Its gift is found in Christ. And here's now the exhortation. If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Listen, because this is what God has done, he sent his son in the incarnation. And because this is what his son did, he died in the atonement, then we are urged to love one another. Listen, if you understand God's unmerited love at the cross, you will be compelled to love others. That's the point. See, listen, our motivation To love others is understood in the light of the fact that we have received God's love in the new birth and have the gift of love in the person of Jesus Christ. I might just say to us, and I think I'm more talking about to our body. I don't think John's comment can be contained to the family of God, but I think it's primarily there. How can you not love another In light of God's love that was so wondrously displayed to you. How could you be bitter against another? How could you be unforgiving against another? How can you hold a grudge? Really? Really? See, I I think when we get to that point where we can't extend love, we must not understand anything of Calvary love. Listen, how can you remain unloved to love others in light of his sacrifice? In fact, what's so neat about this passage, is this not true, is just the love of God and our love for one another can never be separated, right? The great commandment is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you know it. Love your neighbor, what? As yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and all the what? All the prophets. In fact, I know some churches that have made that their purpose statement. We're only trying to do one thing here. Love God and love others. And pretty much if you do that, you've contained and you understand all the law and the prophets. But I love what Jesus said. It's not enough just to love him. And I I think he gave us love others because he basically said, if your vertical relationship is right with me this way, then it will be demonstrated on a horizontal level. And people who can't love one another on this level horizontal, reveal that there's something wrong on the vertical. And so Jesus is the master teacher, put them both together. Oh, both of them are important. That is in some ways the purpose of the Christian life, loving him and loving others, but they're both bound up in that. If I just glance down a few verses. We'll get there in a few weeks. 1 John 4, 20. Is this not clear? Remember this one? If anyone says that I love God, And hates his brother. He is a what? Liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his what? His brother. In fact, I'm thinking of Romans. I quoted it early 13.8. Oh, nothing or oh, no one anything except to love each other. The one who loves another has fulfilled the law. And so we're just commanded to love one another. That is why, again, say where's this fit in the whole context of the book? Well, I think it's the same thing. He wants to show that you have assurance. And and if you love the people of God and love the truth of God and want to extend your life to someone else, then it is but a marker that you've been born of God and that you what? You know God. Now listen, I could be done but I'm not because there's one more incredible verse. Look at it. He says this and it's kind of like out of nowhere. You ever figure how this fit in? No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. I mean it just seems so abrupt. In fact, it's so abrupt that one scholar said, and I, I shouldn't laugh, it's a mistake. That's what he said. Another scholar said, um, it's misplaced. He, he, maybe when they were writing the manuscript, verse 12 should have gone after verse 20. And I'm like, I don't think so. These are ancient words. God doesn't make any mistakes. This book is his infallible word. And so look at it again. Why does he say this? No one who has seen God... That No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and our love is perfected in us. Now, we know that no one has ever seen God. And we know that no one has ever seen God, John 4, because God is a what? He's a spirit. We understand that. We understand 1 Timothy 1, 17, when Paul said to the king of ages, immortal, what? in visible. We sang part of that. The only wise God. Nobody can see God. In fact, anyone who would see God would not be what? Alive. In fact, look at the exact wording there. No one, in other words, no exceptions, it says this, has ever, in other words, at no time seen God. You say, well, pastor, what about Moses? What about Moses on the mountain in Exodus 33? What he saw there was a theophany, we call it. It was a manifestation of God, but it wasn't the essence of God. He said, you go hide in the cleft of the rock and I will show you my my back parts, if you will, is the thought. In other words, he only revealed part of his character. And then what did he reveal? The Lord, the Lord God, who is loving and kind and gracious and forgiving. But Moses did not see the essence of God, for no man shall see God and what? Live. He said, okay, pastor, what about when Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the what? The Father. I think he's just there expressing that if you've seen me, you've seen the heart and the character of God, but you've not seen God the Father, the first person of the Trinity physically, but certainly Christ has made him known. So no one has seen God at any time. But, but watch this. When you love one another, two things take place. Look at the text. Two things happen. It says there in verse 12 that God abides in us. When we love one another, we experience God's presence abiding in us. In other words, there's your assurance that by loving others, believers are assured that God abides in you. Now, don't flip the the process here. You don't gain that assurance by loving, but by loving others, it demonstrates the fruit out of your life that the root in your heart is that you know God and have been born of God. So you are assured of God's presence. So the invisible God who no one has ever seen at any time, abides in those who love one another. In fact, our love for, one, for others is proof of God abiding in us. It's a, it's a verification of your assurance. Just look back one chapter in 3.23. Remember when, when John said this, this is the commandments that we believe two things. It's, you have to believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He commanded us. And whoever, this is the phrase, keeps, whoever keeps His commandments, abides in God. You remain in God. You dwell in God. And then it wonderfully says, and God, 324, in Him. Amazing. Amazing. And so here, The experience that we have when we show this love is the assurance of God's indwelling presence in our life. Now look at secondly there. He says, when you love God, not only does he abide in you, verse 12 says that his love is perfected in us. It doesn't mean that we're perfect. That word perfected in us means that God's love, when you demonstrate that love to another, is complete. It's the idea to finish. In other words, to perfect is to bring it to its desired goal. In other words, God's love reaches its intended goal when that love is reproduced in us and then it's demonstrated it, demonstrated to others. So listen, this is so vital. It's incredible that God's love manifested in his Son is brought to maturity when we love one another. That's his desire. In fact, look back just at first John 3:16. Remember when we saw it there? By this we know love. How do we know it, John? That he laid down his life for us. And now do you see it? We ought to lay, our, lay down our lives for what? The brothers. In other words, that's always the order. He laid it down for us, and so we ought to lay it down for another. You say, well, Scott, what does that practically mean? I'll let the Holy Spirit, but it could have many, many outlets to each other, to your family, to the people you meet. I can give you one from the book. Look at verse 17, Grace Church, 317, But if anyone, 317, has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. There it is. If you see your brother and you see them in need, you close your heart against them, how does the love of God abide in you? And so this love is demonstrated in manifold various ways, in gifts of service, in meals, and kinds, in words of exhortation, in teaching, in discipleship, in, in exhortation, all those things, in giving, how we give to the Lord's work. What an incredible passage here. And so you say, well, Scott, why are we to love one another? Listen, here's why. Because number one, it's God's nature to love. And number two, God's gift of his son. You understand? In other words, it's his nature. It's who he is. And then he gave us his son. Listen, at Bethlehem, one starry night, a baby was born. One that was eternal. One that was uncreated one that was self-existent from all eternity, the second person of the Godhead, creator of the world, sustainer of the universe. He was a child born. He was a son given. He was fully man, but he was fully God. And at the age of 30, he began to preach to a chosen people at a chosen place for a chosen period. And he went about doing good, performing many, many miracles and preaching truth. He was the embodiment of love, even exhorting us to love our enemies. But the religious, the political leaders hated him from the start. An attempt was made in his life at his birth. Plots throughout his life were attempted. His enemies hired one of his own disciples, did they not, to betray him. He was beaten by a ruthless execution squad, scourged to the bone, crowned with thorns, mocked, spit upon. He carried about his own cross to his execution. And he was nailed hand and foot to a wooden cross and hung there to die in one of the cruelest ways possible ever, ever devised. The earth shook, the rocks split, darkness covered the land. God would hurl the sin of the world upon him for those three lonely hours of supernatural darkness while our precious Savior would bleed for you while he would die for you, while he would become your substitute for your sin, where he would bear your sin upon his body on a tree. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. He would show himself alive by many convincing proofs. He is now seated at the right hand of the Father and daily, the scripture says, intercedes for you as we await his return in glory. Listen, he did all that for you. You can't hold back love from people, can you? I just think we would love on so much. I mean, what would happen in our church and in our community if we love this way? But oh, beloved, a little wedge of bitterness gets in your heart. A little wedge of somebody stabbed you in the back and somebody said this, and all of a sudden you become bitter and you stop loving in this way. Listen, get back to Calvary love, amen? Get back to that place. Do you remember that great that great hymn by Isaac Watts? You could probably say it with me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too what small? Love so amazing, so divine, demands my heart, my life, my what all. That's our prayer.